Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Ken Hauer. Ken is an off-roader, a musician, current president of RTF, which is Rubicon Trail Foundation. And this is the one I need to ask about. He is a field readiness architect. And so um, I'm not sure what that entails, but we're going to find out. Ken, thank you so much for coming on board and uh, spending some time with us. Thanks, Rich, for having me on here. I really appreciate it. I listen to your podcast, so this is going to be strange hearing my own voice. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody says that. Um, Yeah. You know, I got to listen to mine over and over every time I, I, you know, record, then edit. You, yeah. You poor dude. <laughs> yeah, I hate listening to my own voice. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, anyway, let's get started, and let's find out where you were born and raised. Yeah, so uh, nowhere near the Rubicon, but still in California. So I was born and raised in Burlingame, California, which is not – it's on the peninsula between – about halfway between – San Francisco and San Jose. It's a very expensive uh, uh, suburb bedroom community of Silicon Valley and San Francisco. So people who live in both like to, in the school district. So it's a very expensive place to live. Hillsborough is right next to it. Um, but my dad and my family are fourth. I'm the fourth generation that was born and raised. Like my dad was born in a house on Peninsula Avenue in uh in Burlingame, and my grandmother's house is a historical landmark on Burlingame Avenue. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, so my family has a lot of history. My grandmother, believe it or not, was the first Miss Burlingame in 1935. Wow, first so, Miss Burlingame. Yeah. So yeah. I have to ask a question. Were you born at Peninsula Hospital? I was born at Mills. Oh, at Mills, okay. So, I was yeah, born at I Peninsula. Born- Oh, wow. Okay. All right. We had no idea. We were... Yeah, I grew up in San Bruno. Okay. Yeah, um, little toddlers running around, <laughs> running yeah. around wreaking havoc. Yep, went to um, Cappuccino and uh, cruised the L. 
you know, just like everybody else did. Oh, yeah. Shut it down. <laughs> yep. Cruising the El Camino. That's so funny. <laughs> uh, we just dated ourselves hardcore right there. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So I graduated from Burlingham High School. My dad graduated from Burlingham High School. Uh, in fact, the vice principal of Burlingame High when I went there in the 70s asked me if I was related to Ken Howard. I said, yeah, that's my dad. And he went, huh. <laughs> that's, that's all he said was, huh. Um, uh, Vic, uh, shoot, I can't, Mancini, you know, has his name, yeah. So, that's so a funny. lot of history. That's funny because yeah. my dad went to San Mateo High. And oh, Bearcat. <laughs> he was the last, you know, they started CAP Everybody was, you had to start as a freshman. They worked their way up. And so he went to, to San Mateo instead of camp. If they would have started, mm. you know, a full four year, he would have ended up going there. My uh, principal, principal, that's the word mm-hmm. I need, was one of his counselors in high school. So, oh, wow. and, and my dad was, uh, well, he was, you know, Amer- American Graffiti. Milner yeah. that that wrote that drove the yellow the yeah. T coupe. That's what yeah. he was like. That so that's oh, wow. uh, you know he might have been in the principal's office a few times. Yeah, I, ha- I suspect that my dad was because so my family owned a uh, auto repair shop in so that now we're starting to get into the automotive portion. My they owned an auto repair shop that you know everybody knew about in Burlingame. It's called it was called Howard Auto Repair, and it was started by my uncle, great my great uncle, my dad's uncle, and that's where my dad started working when out of out of school he started working there. And of course, I worked there when I was a little kid, you know, sweeping up grass, stain, you know, oil spills and stuff like that, break jobs. Um, and um, so, he, but he was kind of notorious for driving around town with uh, cars with just the frame and stuff, and the cops would chase him around town in it. Um, so, yeah, I think there was a little rebellion in the uh, elder elder generation from the Howard family. I think they were pretty. There were five boys in the family, so they were pretty notorious around town. I would imagine. So, how were you as a student? Me, I was an excellent student. Um, I'm not tooting my own horn. Yeah, I was. I was. School was very easy for me. I w- breezed right through it. I, I didn't cause any trouble. I was a really good kid. Um, you know, it was the '70s, so there was a lot of uh, a lot of drugs in my school because it's a kind of a wealthy school. Um, Nate Nate Crosby was went to my school. Bing Crosby's kid went to my school. Nathaniel, so did, um, yes. Yep, Nathaniel. Yep. And uh, his older sister, um, who shot J.R. Ewing, <laughs> she went there. But I think she graduated the year before I went there, so I don't, I don't, I didn't actually um, see her or meet her. So yeah, there was a lot of wealth there, and, and you know, it was you had to, you had to navigate and learn who to who you were going to be your friends with and what you were going to do because it was pretty much anything that you wanted to get, somebody had it. So um, yeah, so. It was just an interesting thing growing up, but um, you know, most for the most part, all good kids. It was you know, it was a good school. It's still a good school, but yeah, a lot of wealth there. So, is that when you picked up the musical instruments? Yeah, high school. I had a band. Um, I started playing guitar. Uh, my friend Jeff Cohen and I bought our guitar at the music store on Burlingame Avenue the same day. And Jeff, anybody who's a musician will know Pro Tools, and Jeff is one of the project managers. Um, uh, The company's changed names a couple times, so I I don't remember what it is now, but uh, he uh, worked on Pro Tools, and so did my other friend, uh, Chris, who was older. He played keyboards. He also worked on Pro Tools, 
So any musician will know what that is. It's recording software for, you know, recording music. Okay. And then did you, uh, did you play any sports at that time or was it all a band and, and clubs? My first year of high school, I did the swim team. And then, uh, it was the, there was a gas crisis around that time. The pool, they wouldn't heat it or it was heated very minimally, uh, natural gas. And so, uh, it was cold and I ended up getting pneumonia my freshman year. And then my sophomore year, uh, so that ended my swim team career was, uh, was getting pneumonia. And, um, and that's where I actually got into computers, which is part of my job description. So we can get that when you're ready. But uh, yeah, so I, I, my sophomore year is when I started playing guitar. And then my junior year, um, my, my friends got together and we had a band. It was called um, Rave was the name of the band. Uh, first it was Orion, then it was Rave. And we, we used to play things like, um, you know, Wang Dang, Sweet Poon Tang by Ted Nugent, Cat Scratch Fever, and <laughs> Surrender by Cheap Trick. That was pretty much the first record that I learned how to play guitar, guitar to was uh, Cheap Trick Live at Budokan was my nice. guitar. Uh, yeah, that was my that was the album that I learned how to play to. And yeah, we played high schools and, and around, we played Mills High School. I'm pretty sure we played Cappuccino, too. We played a lot of the high schools like at lunchtime. Nice. So, yeah. So that's when I started uh, getting into the music thing, and that's when uh, athletics. Even though I was really good at baseball, um, uh, that's when they kind of. I was too small for football, even though I I was fast. Um, I was five foot three when I got my driver's license, and I was. And you've seen me, so you know I'm not that tall anymore. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was five foot three, one hundred five when I got my driver's license. So football was definitely not in my cards. Um, so I think. That's where I gravitated more towards me, the music side. That's where that happened. Understood. Understood. So then, um, what was the the first vehicle that you got to drive? Not necessarily that you drove with a license, but you know, um, my uh, my mom had a nineteen sixty three Mercury, and that was the car that I learned how to drive in. Okay. Um, it had the wings in the back and stuff she still had that and then um so i drove that around my by then my mom had my dad by that point was working at a buick dealership in burlingame uh, joe putnam so if you're oh yeah with bring your bring your wife bring your checkbook bring your pink slip bring your checkbook down to joe putnam's yeah so that's where my dad worked by then my my dad and my uncle had a work falling out so that's where um they separated at that point and then um so I learned how to drive in that car with the wings and everything. Uh, it had the, the the fancy headlights, the dual headlights in the front. You know, the old school with the button on the floor. The, the really way to do high beams. Right. The, <laughs> uh, uh, it's kind of a big boat. Yeah. Now, 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 by the time that time, my dad did not have any uh, four wheel drive rigs. But when I was born, my dad had a nineteen. 19- I think it was a 5152 uh, CJ3A, the short, uh, not a tall hood. And he put a V8 in it in 1959, way before anybody else was putting V8s in a flat fender. Right. Cool. So, so, but I never got to drive that because he sold it when my brother was born and I was around five when he sold that. So, are you the oldest? I am the oldest. I have a brother who's uh, f- uh, five years young, four and a half five years younger than I am. 
Um, he lives in Reading. He is a big time fisherman, so he does the fishing report for Lake Shasta um, on the radio, on the radio, and in the news, and people subscribe to his stuff. And he fishes like a lot, and he knows it like inside, outside, upside down. My dad was a fisherman and a hunter, uh, and I duck hunted up until I was a probably discovered girl. <laughs> so right. sophomore, sophomore-ish time in high school and also started playing guitar. And that's when I kind of w- stepped away from duck hunting and hunting and all that stuff. But my brother kept going and, and they've had duck clubs. My brother just probably stopped duck hunting regularly, like maybe two, three years ago. But he fishes a lot. He's got a boat and a you know, slip and on Shasta. So okay. he's in Reading. And um uh, he was a hardwood floor person. So he was the guy who took apart my train set, and I was the one who was upset that he took disassembled my train set. So that was our <laughs> that was our childhood. <laughs> so playing in a band, yeah, did you have how long was your hair? Oh, that's an ex- oh, that's an awesome question. So my dad is a badass. My dad was you know old school where the cars were on jack stands and he did transmissions. And just to give your viewers who are, you know, he would go many Saturdays and Sundays, I would go down to the shop and race around the shop on a creeper. Um, uh, and, and he would put the transmission on his chest and then he would bench press it up and put it into the car. This is before lifts and transmission jacks and all that stuff. This is, you know, early 60s. And uh, so my dad had guns. Well, I started growing my hair out immediately and my mom would protect me and she would say, you know, Ken, my dad's name is also Ken. She would say, Ken, he gets good grades. He doesn't get in trouble. He just likes to have long hair. And my dad hated it. My first record that I ever bought was Kiss Alive. <laughs> and Kiss was the evil incarnate in itself. And not that my dad was religious by any stretch of the imagination, but he hated Kiss. <laughs> I, and, I have um, a lot in common with your dad <laughs> that way. So I, I, I am, uh, we can talk about any of this stuff later, but I am uh, in fact, he's at my house right now. I'm really good friends with Scott Travis, the drummer for Judas priest. He's here okay. at my house right now. Nice. And, and um, so I took my dad to, to down to um, Helena, Helen, the Helen amphitheater where they had the us festival um, it wasn't the S Festival, but I took my dad down there because um, Black Sabbath and Judas Priest were on a double bill together along with Motorhead. And I was taking my dad to the California Speedway to a NASCAR race, and uh, Judas Priest just happened to be playing the night before. So I took my dad, and I got to take him backstage and meet everything. And my mom said that he yammered on about that go being there and he, how awesome it was for like three months. He wouldn't stop talking about it. Nice. And while, while we were driving down, um, shouted out loud by Kiss came on the radio and I said, hey, dad, do you know who this is? And he goes, nah. And I said, this is Kiss. And he's like, okay. Like he didn't understand where I was going. And I turned it on liquid metal on XM radio and it just happened to be, um, I call them cookie monster vocals, you know, roar, roar, roar. Right. And I, dad, this is what I have to deal with as a parent. And this is what you <laughs> had to deal with the parent. And he, my dad's old school. He's not going to say, I'm sorry. He's not going to, you know, I know he loves me, but I, I, he's not going to say that any of those things. He looked at me and he just gave me a smirk with his handlebar mustache with the wax on it out to the tips and just looked at me and went, 
you know, gave me the smirk like the Robert Redford meme that everybody's seen, you know, with a, where he just nods really qu- quietly from Jeremiah Johnson. Um, right. Yeah, that's, that was my dad's acknowledgement that Kiss wasn't as bad as he always thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny stuff. That's good. Yeah. So, yes, I had hair and one night at dinner, the thing, you know, things that you don't never forget. Um, we were at dinner and my, in the middle of dinner, my grandparents are there. My mom's parents are there. Um, also a Jeeper, by the way, had a flat fender and a Bronco. Um, sitting at the table, my dad goes, when are you going to cut that hair? Right in the middle of a Sunday dinner. And my mom once again defended me. Uh, my mom passed last year, so bless her heart. Um, she defended me, and my dad got furious. And the next thing I know, I'm holding his shirt, he's holding my shirt, and we both have our right arms cocked. And I looked at his arm, and I looked down at my little scrawny little arm, you know, five foot three, one oh five. And I let go of his shirt, he let go of mine. And uh, yeah, it was a very tense moment, my long hair. So then, the four-wheel drive started when for you? Um, so my, like I said earlier, my dad had a flat fender. My dad did go on the Jeepers Jamboree. He actually took my uncle, Ernie, which uh, a lot of wheelers in the area will remember my uncle from the 80s. He had a 44 flat fender that was uh, silver and it had pinstriping all over it. And he had chrome tie rods and chrome diff covers, which was pretty unusual for that time frame. And it said Heil Silver on the hood and his license plate said One Bad 44. And he was on the Sierra Track Jeepers Jamboree. So my dad took him when he was a teenager in the late 1950s, took him on the Jeepers Jamboree. And that was kind of the extent of my wheeling. I, I didn't, we didn't really go that much. And, uh, when I was, uh, growing up, but my grandfather, he kept going, he sold his flat fender and he bought a 1969 Bronco and he ended up on the, uh, in four wheel drive magazine on the Jeepers Chambery going through V rock, uh, V the V notch at uh, big sluice back then when you had to go through it. And Jeeps could straddle it, but Broncos had to go on their side to kind of go through it because they were a lot wider. Um, And so he ended up in the magazine with that. And um, when I turned 18, so I was 17, I graduated from high school. My my cousin that summer took me, 1979, uh, it was like June or July, he took me in his Bronco. My cousin had a, built a Bronco, and it was, uh, you know, fully capable uh, Detroit lockers at the time. And he took me through the Rubicon for the very first time. We went through um, together. We stayed at Rubicon Springs. Um, and then that summer, later that summer in July, end of July, my uncle in his high L silver took me on the Jeepers Jamboree for my first Jeepers Jamboree when I was uh, 17, um, just turned 18. Because uh, my birthday is July 29th, so it just depends on where the jamboree falls, whether it's my birthday weekend or not. Right. Uh, so yeah, so that's where that's where I really started getting hooked, and I was going all the time with my cousin in his Bronco and his friend Neil, who also has a flat fender now. Um, we we would go weekend, and so I was the young guy because my cousin's uh, four years older than I am, and so he. Uh, you know, would take me and you know, the rule was, you know, you're going to eat whatever we eat and you're going to help pull your weight, cleaning up and stuff around camp. But, you know, I just wanted to go drink beer. So <laughs> <laughs> I said, I would say anything to go wheeling and, and hanging out with them for the weekend because they could buy beer. Nice. Um, 
Yeah. So I, I did a lot of wheeling there. And then um, we actually, we were there one time for a whole week and the high lows were over at Dirty Dozen. And we were at the camp where the shower is kind of down. Um, I think you have to kind of double back to go to it now, but because um, you don't go, th- you, you go on the high road uh, through the springs there now. Right. Um, we were there and we went over to go see the high lows with my cousin. I still don't own a Jeep at this point, but I'm really into it. And uh, we we go to visit the high lows and my cousin comes through the bushes, which you can't do anymore. You, you can't go that way. And he cuts it too close to the little jump cliff there and sinks his Bronco water over the hood. Done. Wow. And all the high lows are laughing hysterically. And I'm in the Jeep behind him. And my camera is in the center console and it's she, she a 35, my 35 millimeter camera. She gone. <laughs> right. And they, the high lows pulled, winch my cousin out all. He's literally got a floating garage sale of empty beer cans and toilet paper. And these kids are in little rubber rafts. They're collecting all of his uh, stuff and they, they pull it out. And Sal Sanzeri, who now here's the, your full circle story. Sal Sanzeri, gets underneath and does the drain plug and they drain the oil water comes out of the engine it's you know all water then oil sal drains it and then sal and i now he's on the rtf board sal and i are talking and we realize that he's the one that drained my cousin's oil that day 42 years earlier wow Uh, yeah and so uh this year on the jeep or chambery my cousin and i met uh we went to the garage where sal volunteers and uh they got to meet and hug for the first time in 42 years because it was 1980 when that happened um so it was really it was a really neat moment but yeah so that's that i i was hooked you know <laughs> that's Stinking all a rig, draining oil come on i was had spark plugs on a rock um trying to dry the spark plugs out we got it working <laughs> My cousin's uh, Pioneer Super Tuner uh, cassette player still worked. It was, uh, I, it was, I was, it was, I was in heaven. I was in heaven. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So let's uh, let's talk about field readiness architect. Yeah. So uh, I ended up. I, I I worked for DHL as a, um, a supervisor loading the airplanes at SFO, and I got little little lead up to it i got a job posting uh for a a, a compensation analyst doing um compensation on uh an, an analysis on excel and i had really learned excel like really good at a very high level and so i applied i got it and when i got there i saw that the dhl used peoplesoft and i didn't know what it was didn't know anything about it and I had a really great manager his name's chris mayhar and i had only had this job for gosh, maybe a month or two. And I walked into his office and I said, look, uh, I really love my job. I love what I'm doing. Uh, but this PeopleSoft thing, it's in your department. So if, if you ever have an opening over there, I really want to go over there. And so I did. I ended up being the HRS manager for uh, DHL running PeopleSoft. They moved to Florida. I didn't want to go. I got a job as a consultant at PeopleSoft. So I did that for nine years. And then the founder of PeopleSoft created a company called Workday. So any more than half of the Fortune 500 companies use the, uh, Workday HR and financials. Uh, and so I became a consultant there. I switched. And now, so a field readiness architect is the group of people that help 
Uh, they're, they're the experts of the software that help the consultants that implement it. So when they're there implementing and they have a real question that they don't know or don't know how something works, they come to us and I support the uh, mobile app. Our mobile app is quite popular, so I support that. So yeah. I become an expert in mobile apps, believe it or not. So quite a journey, honestly. Excellent. Okay. So that stuff is all uh, like speaking Arabic or reading Arabic to me. I I, I barely get my phone open. The, the you, greatest. You, you, you were puzzled by another phone call. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there was too many options, and I didn't know what I would end up doing. So exactly. The uh, I remember when I first got a computer, which was nineteen, or excuse me, two thousand and two thousand and one. We had started Calrocks. And yeah. everybody told me, you're going to need a computer. So I got a computer and I was just struggling with a bunch of things. And I was typing a bunch of things out and my son looks at me and goes, why don't you just cut and paste all that? And I'm like, <laughs> what? And he goes, yeah, just, just do this, this, and this, and then move it over. And I'm like, wow, that's the greatest thing ever. Mind blown. <laughs> yeah, so 2001, I learned how to cut and paste. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, 19, 1992, I didn't know how to get my resume off a of floppy disk, so all you old-timers will know a floppy disk. <laughs> um, and, now, and now I work for one of the largest software companies in the world. This is kind of a mind, mind blow. But <laughs> That's awesome. So let's... Uh, Let's dive into the Rubicon Trail mm-hmm. and your, you know, we, we know that you started doing that in 79 in the early years. Uh, my first mm-hmm. trip was in 82, end of 82. Similar. But you fell in love with, with the whole idea of wheeling and stuff. And how did you, uh, how did you continue on and, and get involved with the trail itself? That's a that's another great question, and we did. And just so anybody listening, we didn't like prep these in advance. He's coming up with amazing, relevant <laughs> questions like all on his own. So I just want to give you props. Well, that's um, good because the other day at the board of supervisors meeting, I was like, I got was so mad I just couldn't even speak what I wanted yeah, to say or br- anything. It's very difficult, yeah. And actually, you know, you asked that question, and we can get into that later. But uh, you didn't get an answer on that ever. In that, uh, they talked around it, but they never answered your question. No, they were afraid was, to. Anyway, yeah. So let's yeah. talk about the trail and how you got involved. Yeah. So nineteen, uh, just so nineteen eighty two. I'm really into this. I love it. Um, I tell my dad I want to buy a flat fender, and he just laughed. <laughs> he said. Uh, you know you're going to have to wrench on this. And I was like, yeah. So we looked at a bunch of flat fenders in Auto Trader, and I ended up buying it. And um, in 1986, I threw a rod in the original L head, and I put a V6 and you know, Buick uh, four, Saginaw four-speed power steering, all that, you know, the traditional super-built 80s rig. <laughs> and um, um, I started going, and then I, I don't know the exact year, but it was probably around 1985 or so. Uh, anybody, somebody probably knows better than I, but we were actually at the Springs when uh, we started having a a conversation around the fire that we had heard that somebody bought the Rubicon Springs. And we were, you know, there was no internet, none none of that stuff, right? You just, I don't know how we even found out about it, but we were all like, they're going to put up a gate. 
this is going to be somebody's private property. This is, you know, bull, you know, we were, you know, the typical conversation around the fire. And um, as I started getting more into the Rubicon, I started remembering back to that moment. And I heard the saying from Phil Harris from Deadliest Catch, but it was really my motto, but I've never really heard it articulated fully was he said, there are people that uh, wonder what the F happened. There's people that, and I don't know if you swear or not. So it's I'm fine. You kind. can swear on your. Okay. He said, I wonder, I, there are people that wonder what the, what the fuck just happened. There are people that make shit happen. And, and then there's people that watch shit happen. And he goes, I never want to be what the fuck just happened. And, uh, and as you're aware, and we, whenever we want to get into it, you, you started the Rubicon trail patrol and, I had just gotten a divorce in 2005, and um, in 2004, I went to one of your first meetings at Roundtable Pizza, I believe, in Placerville, where we had it. Okay. Um, and you trained people on how to do Rubicon Trail Patrol, and that was the – I heard about our uh, FOTR, and I knew about the tr- Shovel Brigade the year before or two years before – or no, I guess it was like four years before, 2001 – uh, but that really wasn't my thing at the time. But when I heard about the Rubicon Trail Patrol, I thought that was uh, a really good way for me to ride around on the Rubicon and pick up trash. And th- that was kind of like what I did and just, you know, just go up and down the trail, talk to people, you know, and hang out and, uh, you know, not not really enforcing anything, but just educating people, which really was what became the mid-trail staff, which we can talk about that later. Right. Um, so that's how I got involved with the Rubicon because I, I didn't want to be in the, I don't know what. And now, of course, the person that bought that was Mark Smith. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that. And I didn't know what Mark Smith's uh, journey was about or why he bought it. But, of course, he always said, you know, if they ever close the Rubicon Trail, I'll make sure 3,000 of my closest friends have a key. I didn't know, I didn't know that at the time. But uh, that's what kind of got my uh, direction towards making sure that we could save the Rubicon Trail. So that's really where that started was, was that. Okay. That, that makes total sense. So then you got involved with Trail Patrol and then... Um, then you, took it over from you when you got We Rock going. Right. Yep. And, and you guys, when I started that, it wasn't... It was a little different type of education <laughs> that yeah. we tried to. <laughs> I'm trying to be kind, <laughs> but it was a different time. It was a totally right. different time. There was still the the dumbasses out there. It was yes. just fewer of them. Um, everybody started to see the light that that you yes. know, if we continued to use it as a as a war zone, you might say for partying, that it yeah. was, that we were going to lose. We you know we. Too many we people were, were using it, and the the internet happened, you know. And that's, yeah, the, the internet happened. Yeah, the internet happened. Um, we, I was just talking to a friend about it the other day when we went snow wheeling, and it was, you know, he he claimed it was the internet, you know, killed the the radio or the whatever, you know, the MTV thing. Um, but I told him, I said, you know, I thought it was they when they closed Bassey Falls. Um, yeah, because everybody then that had a $500 Toyota pickup truck and welded, you know, welded diffs would go into the little sluice. And that's where yeah. everything started to, to go bad. And, uh, you know, but there's, there's that, that different was, opinions and when it happened. 
Yeah. So, so, it, and, and for people that are listening and want to know about us, you know, old timers that you did not go, uh, you did not go. And back then in the, before the early eighties, when Mark Smith kind of perfected the loon Lake entrance, you went in at Wentworth Springs road. That was the way that you went in and you didn't go to little sluice and turn around and come back. It was a journey. You started on, on the, you know, on the, western side and you crossed over and you camped at rubicon springs most likely buck island lake really wasn't a thing you stopped there maybe took a swim but you left and you went to rubicon springs and then you continued on out on sunday and that was your journey you didn't go back and forth like a lot of people i hell i do it <laughs> so right. um it was really a different experience and nobody trailered their rig nobody i mean maybe one guy that lived in tahoe trailered his rig to the staging area and did it that way um but super super rare for a trailered rig everybody drove their jeep to get there and it was a journey but that's when it started to change like in the late 90s um early um early 2000s was that back and forth to spire lakes little sluice box kind of thing and you know got overcrowded and overused and eventually you know it was condemned by the forest service but in 04 for human feces and you know, really, I think people started to realize how serious um, the problem was uh, around that time frame. Right. And they tried to claim that it was damaging the the drinking water or the water supply. Yeah. And what I I can remember getting hold of uh, Tim Webster, Disco, and saying, yeah. hey, Tim, you're doing the, the water quality checks, right? And he goes, yeah. And I said, we need to test all the waters around the Rubicon for a base right now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he already had that at the, at the reservoirs that he was doing, but he went up and, and did checks at other places um, so that we had a a water quality standard that we could uh, use if we needed it. Well, we ended up not having to use it, but, you know, we, uh, we did jump on that. And a lot of people, you know, besides Webster and I, I don't know if there's anybody else that even realized that. R- RTF did as well. Um, Scott Johnson, I believe, was one of the ones that did that. The, the Rubicon Foundation paid uh, like $5,000. And so in order to do a fecal, a correct, like a legal fecal and uh, oil um, in, in water, yeah, you have a certain time frame that you have to get it to there. And they used the Jeepers Jamboree helicopter, which we knew are, you know, our enemies, uh, RMK, uh, Rich, Monty, and Karen, uh, would not be able to use the helicopter and they flew it to the they, RTF paid for the uh, Jeepers Jamboree volunteered the helicopter. They flew the water from Ellis and other Loki Buck Island. I believe they flew it to the dam and then they hauled ass to uh, Cameron park. I believe it was where the uh, lab was that tested it. And um, that was big. You obviously remember the water quality board hearings back in, I believe Oh nine, they already had that water quality that that new Ellis Creek had more sediment above Ellis Creek than it did below. So mother nature had more pebbles, as they say, it was a pebble count water test, they call it. Um, so yeah, we, we, we were really onto that stuff, like really early on, like you said, with uh, testing the water. Yeah. And Tim, obviously with the water, he was great um, being able to do that back in the day. Right. So when uh, Dell started, friends of the Rubicon and kind of got everybody organized with the, you know, 
the shovels and going out and, and doing the things to keep the, the trail open and mm-hmm. all the cleanups involved and all the clubs that, that did that, you know, like the pirate cleanup and stuff. Um, when did, when was the first time you got involved with any of that? Was it that after the trail patrol? With, it, it was with Trail Patrol, and so what I would do, if you were on any of those FOTR or the, when they built the TLC bridge, I would go those days, whenever there was an FOTR project on the trail, I would go that that day, and I would be on my ATV with my Trail Patrol sign, and I would usually have a couple friends, and we would bring trash bags, and we would just pick up random trash and things that, water bottles that were, you know, fell out, usually on accident. We would... You know, go pick that would that's what we would do that day while there while those kinds of like uh, work projects were going on and and we would do that. And I, I know people the trail is in such a great condition now. But, uh, my first time going through on trail patrol, I had a black trash bag and I filled that thing a quarter of the way between the kiosk and uh, Spider Lake with trash. That is no way you could do that these days. So many, everybody's so much more conscientious with trash bags and spill kits and all that stuff from the County and, and RTF both uh, donate those things for free. But yeah, the difference between now and back then is just literally night and day in terms of cleanliness of the trail and how people treat it. It's not that people were mistreating it intentionally. It was just not knowing that how, what they were doing was, would, eventually for sure get it closed hundred percent. Right. I, you know, I, I get a chance to wheel all across the United States, um, especially yeah. central and East coast. You know, there's a lot of parks and right. there are parks out there and I'm not going to name them, but the people that when they, they hear my description um, will know which parks they might be because they've been to them that the people don't care since it's private property. It's like, you know, oh, I'm done with uh, my beer or water bottle or whatever, sandwich wrapper, and instead of throwing, keeping it in their vehicle or trash bagging it, it just gets wow. thrown out of the vehicle. Wow. And it, I, it, wow. it really is, it really does amaze me. Um, back then in... Oh God, 06, 07, went to a park and which has now been taken over by the county and it's no longer private property. They did an intimate domain thing and cleaned it up. But we were going to put an event on there and it was, there were so many beer cans, the homeless could have been fed for a week if they had just picked up the beer cans. And it was on their private property. And I was absolutely flabbergasted. I couldn't believe that people would just throw their shit out the window. And I mean, I, I crunched up a beer can, put it on the on the floorboard. And the guy goes, "Don't put that. Leave that in my truck. You know, throw it out." And I'm like, "We're not near a trash can. You know, it it, it just yeah. blew my mind." Yeah, and 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 that's what's been awesome to see is that that uh, that mind shift of the people on the Rubicon Trail. Over the years, just through an effort of a lot of people, no, no one, you know, one portion, one organization, just a collaborative effort for, from everybody to change that mindset. And 
now the trail is just absolutely gorgeous. But if you told somebody in 2004 or five, when they condemned uh, little sluice spider Lake, that 700 pounds of human feces was removed from that area with by the volunteers that went to go clean it up, including Jack Sweeney, who was there that day. Um, they thought now they would, they would be, they would be like, what they would, they wouldn't be able to even comprehend that, that was a thing, but it was, you know? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, the little white flowers is what we call it. Little white flowers, yes. Little white flowers. So when did toilet, to- toilet paper? For those that people don't know, that right. may not know, we we're we're familiar with that term here. Right. So the you got involved with RTF. Um, when did you get involved with RTF? So. Um, John Arns was the one who initially re- not recruited me, but said, Hey, we have an open board seat. Are you interested? And the first thing out of my mouth was a uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had uh, at that point in time, I had no interest in the political part of it. I wanted to be the boots on the ground guy, picking up trash, can- picking up trash, um, helping on projects. By then I was d- doing some projects, um, you know, sawtooth and stuff like that um, with, uh, with volunteers from FOTR. And um, I, I said, no. And uh, 2011, uh, Doug Barr uh, uh, resigned. His seat opened up in the, in the middle of his term. And um, John asked me again, and I, once again, I said, no. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I thought about it and I kept thinking about it and it goes back to that. I could wonder what the fuck happened. I could watch stuff happen or I could make stuff happen. And I said, I remembered back to that 1985 discussion where, uh, I didn't know what happened. And I thought for sure the Rubicon trail was going to get a gate on it at the Springs. And, you know, it was going to be somebody's rich pra- private playground and uh, that I remembered that, and I said, you know what? I, instead of just like being involved or not knowing what's going on, I think I'm going to try to make stuff happen now. Um, I felt like I had been around it long enough and talked to a lot of people and been to rock meetings at that point that I, I was educated enough where I felt like I could help. Uh, uh, and I uh, immediately joined the the political action committee with Scott Johnston and John Arns. <laughs> Like the least desirable um, uh, part of RTF is the political action committee because uh, we have committees kind of like, you know, finance department, marketing department. Cause, um, so anyway, yeah, I joined that because I, I just wanted to understand it more. And um, and through that, uh, when that happened, uh, when uh, the county in 2012, a year later, went for the easement, uh, even though I was on the RTF board, I re- I had gone to training classes uh, that that were that FOTR had done at the Cal Four office on how to write substantive comments to the Forest Service for uh, Forest Service actions, i.e., the twenty uh, the the uh, two thousand and five travel management plan. I had learned how to write. Um, the comments to become an appellate. Uh, that means you can file a lawsuit because your, your, your comments are in good standing. And so uh, I wrote, I wrote my own comp individual comments. So other on the wheeling side, I was the only individual person that, that was on, in the water, in the easement meetings with the forest service center for biodiversity and all of those. So that's, that's really where I got my political, 
knowledge was really through that process and obviously now it's relevant with uh, what's been going on recently and and what's in that easement and why that's important so okay and uh you just became president of for or friends of the root not friends excuse me the rubicon trail foundation this last year right 2022 july of uh July of 21, I was uh, the vice president and Chris Cowan stepped down. So uh, I got it. They voted me in and uh, my I'm up for re-election in January. And um, you, you are obviously familiar with all the things that are going on. Um, there's also the Tahoe side is important for uh, other reasons. But uh, I am going to run again in, in January for continuity. And the board has been asking me if I was going to run. They've been asking me. So I said, yes, I'm going to run for a full a second term, which is pretty rare in RTF. I think there's only three that Dell, uh, Scott Johnson, and now myself are the only presidents that have ever run twice. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't know what that says. Either I'm really dumb or uh, <laughs> they're smart. I don't know. <laughs> so then let's let's go ahead and dive into to what's happening right now. In yeah, in December, the, the weather started to come in and hit this weather cyclone bomb, whatever they want to call it. Mm-hmm. But prior yeah. to that, there was a a group of enthusiasts that went up um, toward Wentworth Springs and ended up getting snowed in. Yes, and then kind of uh, the proverbial shit hit the fan. But the local recovery group which you can talk about um, mm-hmm. better than I can, went up and helped them get out. Yeah, Nor- NorCal 4x4 Rescue, I believe they have uh, Tyler uh, Larson from More-, More Flat. I think you've interviewed him. I'm not uh, if I am. No, I haven't. Um, okay. Um, he also has a podcast, so I get them confused what I listen to and who did what. So. Right. Um, uh, Tyler, Tyler organized that group that went in there and it was an extraction. Uh, people use the word rescue. It was not a rescue. It was an extraction. They needed help, uh, because of some water diverted from Gurley Creek and it created a puddle, you know, I mean, that was four or five foot deep and it just needed to be cleared out. And that's what that group did and got them out. And I, I've seen the pictures. You can't even tell where it happened. You can't even tell. And they, they were extracted. They had food. They, they had all that stuff. They were not unprepared. I, I heard there was one person that ran out of cigarettes that was the most concerned. Oh, bummer. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but as far as like life or death, that, that was never a thing. No, no agency, you know, got them out or anything like that. It was the community, which is the way it really should be, unless it's a life-threatening situation. And that's what search and rescue is for, a life-threatening situation. But they don't they don't care about your rig that's and these these guys were all like, hey, we're fine. We just need our we just need to get past this thing and 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 get our rigs extracted. And so that that's really where that came from. And that's really what caused this to happen. And then of course is the atmospheric river or whatever they call it, you know, um, brought concern to the county. And um, do you want me to get into the whole legal aspect of it? Because I can I can do that now. Yeah, I think we need to touch on that because there's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of speculation online about, yeah. you know, why the resolution or why DOT did what they did and the resolution that was just passed by by the Board of Supervisors and why, you know, one of my things is why was 
you know, Parks and Recreation supposedly has has authority, but they pawned it off onto DOT, which, you know, to me, all this I can seems explain to be all over- that. Yeah, okay, l- go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah, I can explain all that. So what's really important and special about the Rubicon Trail, it's not a trail. Uh, it, uh, Bob Sweeney, if you're everybody that's wheeled, Chicano Jeepers Jamboree is familiar with Bob Sweeney. And uh, Bob, if you're listening, uh, I apologize if I get the number of greats incorrectly, but I believe it's his four great grandfather. So great, 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 great grandfather uh, designated the Rubicon Trail as a county road. It's in the newspaper. There's maps of, about it back there in, I believe it was 1886. Okay. And, and why that's important is because in 1906, 1907, the U.S. Forest Service was created. And there was a law, uh, I believe it's the real name is the Wilderness Act, and part of that is RS-2477, which grants the rights to um, government counties, essentially, that owned a road through an area that is now part of the Forest Service, and it granted them the right to claim that as their road through Forest Service property which basically meant they own the road. The Forest Service doesn't. So we all know the Forest Service names their road, you know, N, you know, 14N35 or 14N05. Um, that made the Rubicon Trail an RS2477 route. But in order for that to happen, the county has to assert those rights. And they can assert those rights in two ways. They can go to court and they can sue. And there's been counties in Utah and Arizona that have gone to court and and asserted their RS-2477 rights through legal means. Some have won, some have not. And Panamint Valley, which everybody's, uh, a lot of wheelers should be familiar with in Southern California, that was a road that was in a similar situation. And the difference between Panamint Valley and the reason why they lost uh, was because nobody owned the road. So in the case of the Rubicon Trail, there are four property owners that physically own the road. And the Rubicon Trail Foundation bought 316 acres from Mark's, Mark and Patty Smith specifically to have legal standing so that we could be the legal entity that had the money to do anything as far as um, you know, uh, legal action. We had legal standing for that road. And in 2012, Jack Sweeney was a board of supervisor. He wasn't responsible for the Rubicon Trail, but obviously he was emotionally invested because of his family's, you know, deep and wonderful history with the trail. Um, He uh, went to the U.S. Forest Service and uh, asserted the county's RS-2477 rights as a easement through the forest. So uh, that would be El Dorado National Forest. And so... Um, I was one of the appellants in there. There were eight. There was um, Rich Platt, Monty Hendricks, uh, Karen Schombach, the Center for Biodiversity, Corva, the county, Rubicon Trail Foundation, and little old Ken Howard. <laughs> so right. those, were the, those were the eight people that had legal standing for this easement. And it was a two days of meetings. And through those meetings, you know, the, 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 other, the other side, we'll just call them the other side, they wanted – 
of seasonal closures like we're familiar with in El Dorado County, where it's the the December first through April first, the forest is closed to wheeled uh, wheeling in the snow. It's closed. Right. Can't do it. And so, um, part of that agreement were three conditions. There was um, uh, water saturation, uh, water depth, and the last one was mechanical action wheeling through the trail. And I wish I had it right next to me because I would read you exactly what they were. But when they were written, they were written as or. So this condition or this condition or this condition. So if any one of those three happened, the, the county would monitor and close the trail. That's what the law said. And at the last second, <laughs> last second, I mean, literally people were around the table shaking hands and, and, and congratulating that we'd come to an agreement that everybody could live with. Jesse Barton, the RTF lawyer, said, hey, do you mind if I make these and, ors, ands instead? And everybody said, yeah, sure, no problem. Well, that meant that condition number one and condition number two and condition number three all had to be present in the seven monitoring locations, which was essentially Wentworth Springs Campground, um, um, Devil's Post Pile, uh, climbing up Ellis Creek, which now has a bridge, uh, Soup Bowl, Winter Camp, and Little Sluice. And Winter Camp was the only was the location that five out of six times in the last ten years the trail has closed due to those monitoring protocols. So the county is required to go out and monitor the trail, check those conditions, and and five times out of six been Winter Camp. In 2017, they added three or four feet of rock to raise the road, which was wonderful. And they have not had to close due to those monitoring protocols. But the second part of that is the enforcement. And that is uh, resolution 015201-3. And the fact that I have all these things memorized Wait, now. I would give me that resolution call. number again. Sure. It's resolution 013-20. Excuse me. Let me start over. It's resolution 015-2013. And it's a county resolution that was passed in 2013, and that is the enforcement part of this monitoring protocol easement that was passed for winter access in 2012. Okay. And that, that resolution was written by Ed Knapp, who was county counsel for the county at the time. And Ed understood the RS-2477, so that's where that term comes in again that the county is not legally allowed to close an RS-2477 route. So the county road from 1886 gets pulled from the DOT registry as a county road, and it now gets designated a public road under RS-2477. It is no longer a county road. That means the county does not have the legal authority to close that road. And I know it's splitting hairs, uh, whether you close the access to the road or close the road, but it matters. The law matters. And the law says in the wintertime right now that the only reason that this trail can be closed are those three conditions all being met, which have currently not been met. And they close the Wentworth Springs or Ice House Road in the vicinity. If you go read that resolution, it says close the road, Ice House or Wentworth Springs Road in the vicinity of the Rubicon Trail. They are not allowed to legally close that trail. They can close access to it, but they can't close the trail. And like I said, I know it's splitting hairs, 
But that's really important for the preservation of those RS-2477 rights so that the Forest Service is not part of this process, that it's just the county. And we as the public, like you did, could go up and speak about these issues in public meetings as opposed to the way the Forest Service does. They just write a, write a forest order and sign it, and that's it. <laughs> that's all she wrote. We have we have the ability to voice our opinion now because of that standing. And we don't – Rubicon Trail Foundation is very firm. as We don't want those RS-2477 rights um, um, damaged in any way. And that's why we're fighting for this. It's not the – situation that you know this atmospheric river if the county had come to the foundation and said hey can you help us or the four or jeff lykoff the new sheriff from previously Steen, he came to us and said hey we are stretched to the bone with this emergency can can we we need a we need a break we need the trail closed um you know so they would close like at wentworth springs and ice house road and put up a, a block it there and and close the trail for a few days. We would have absolutely gone out to our 50,000 social media followers of the Rubicon Trail and said, hey, please stay away. The sheriff, you know, swamped, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what they did. They closed it illegally on December 30th. The Parks Department did, um, not the DOT. That's why if the DOT had closed it, we wouldn't have been in that meeting on on Tuesday, on the third, um, on the t- on the tenth of January, we wouldn't have been in that meeting for the DOT to retroactively close it. If they had closed it, we wouldn't have been there because they would already done it. They didn't do it. It was the parks that parks that did it. And and why and the reasons, I I don't really care. You can't close the Rubicon Trail on a magic wand, and that's my stance. You can't close it on a magic wand because you feel like it or you think it's a problem. It's not in any of the documents that says the, the, the county has the legal authority to do it. Not saying that they shouldn't have it. and Maybe we can negotiate and come up with a plan that everybody can live with. And, and that's actually what we're attempting to do. But it's got to be done correctly. And this was not done correctly. That's, that's, that's our stance. Right. That's the <sighs> sitting there in that meeting and listening to – Martinez or whatever the guy's name is that that runs DOT County DOT yeah. for El Dorado County. He was. I don't like the process of of the board of supervisors. I guess is the big thing. You know, it, it was a little janky. <laughs> yeah, he got he got up there and and made a comment. You know, said why what they why they wanted to close it, and they were saying safety, 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 safety. Um, it's not in writing. There's no. nothing in writing that says they could close it for that. That's and you know that exactly. And so then uh, they give a they talk about it. Then they give a comment period where everybody gets three minutes, and yeah. then and then they get to ask. Then the board of supervisors gets to ask from our comments questions because obviously we can't ask a question during yeah. during our three minutes. All we can yeah. do is state a a purpose that we're you know. The reason we're there. Well, you actually did ask a question. Yeah, and I did. anybody is free to go on YouTube and watch Rich walk up to that podium and ask them. Um, so you say you're closing in for public safety. Can you tell me what the standards are or what the criteria is that you close for public safety? And I want everybody to watch that video on YouTube and listen very carefully to the DOT not answer that question at all. He wouldn't even look at an- me. <laughs> his answer should have been 
there aren't any and stop talking. But he went on and on and on. And he clearly did not know anything about RS-2477. And the, and the supervisors don't. And, and that's fair. But that's why they should be asking these type of questions to the people that know the answer. They're, even their legal counsel didn't even know. No, that's and that was one of my... You know, they they kept asking legal counsel, you know, well, what about this? What about that? Um, Turnbow seemed to be the only one, Supervisor Turnbow seemed to be the only one that was on the the right page. Um, Yes. But it was... Let me, I want to stop you, Rich, for a second. And I've already talked to Supervisor Turnbow on the phone, and he is a wheeler. He's been on the Dirty Dozen Midnight Rubicon. He's a wheeler. Um... I want everybody in El Dorado County that has a chance to vote that is a wheeler vote vote that man in when he, if he runs for re-election he understands the Rubicon Trail he understands it and his his constituents are highly represented for the Rubicon Trail through George Turnbow I just want to make, get that out there to make sure give them a, some cr- street cred absolutely and. I was, I didn't, like I said, I didn't like the process because after we did our comments and there was some really, I mean, people were really prepared. I wasn't prepared. I wanted to just, I'm sitting back thinking, okay, I'm going to write an article in Forlow Magazine about this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just so that I have some background and I've heard it, you know, heard it live. And then, you know, they, John Arntz got up, started to, you know, asked, you know, did his statement and when he got to the three minutes, he goes, I thought I was going to be able to, to maybe get five, you know, and they, they just shut him down on that right away. No. And it was obvious that we couldn't, you know, donate our own time to John and let him finish. Yeah, Tom did. He would like to donate my minute and a half to John and they denied the, denied the request. Right. So when I got up after Arntz, it was, I asked that question, you know, okay, why, you know, why are you saying it's safety? Because that's why it was safe. They they listed it in the newspaper and everywhere I read that it was a safety mm-hmm. issue. What they came back and said, it, after that, he had a chance, the guy from DOT had a chance to then sidestep everybody's questions and throw out, you know, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of BS about, you know, why, um, and never really answer a question. Oh, well, we could do this and we'd be willing to do this. And, you know, he was just, he was playing patty cake and it was, it was pissing me off. Um, I think I got a kink in my neck from shaking my head. Um, you know, I saw somebody in the room throw their arms up on the screen cause I was watching it at home on zoom and I got the comment on zoom. Um, I think both John and John and I were, you know, we were sitting on other sides of the aisle, which we have done a lot. Um, but not, not, you know, I mean, that's I knew what you meant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so, you know, we uh, we were both really kind of demonstrative um, during the process because it was it was maddening. You know, we didn't get another chance to to ask questions that the board of supervisors didn't know the questions to ask. I guess I guess what it should have been <laughs> is we should have been taking notes and then handed it to some you know to to Turnbow and said, "Here, here's the questions you need to ask him." Um, yeah, because what he did is he said, "Well, it's the safety of our monitors, the people monitoring." 
you know, we don't, we, we can't, we can't have them go up there and get hurt. You know, we're, we got to protect the roads. We got to protect our personnel, all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking you guys are so full of shit. And they, they flew the helicopter over and that's how they made their, their qualifications or their, their, you know, that's where they, they got their information Yeah, is the way I heard it. So, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not aware of that. It wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me, but, um, so I, I will tell you the, I want to give you the good news that, that that's kind of fallen out from that is, um, L- Lori Parlin, who is the supervisor for El Dorado County right. is the one who's actually responsible for the trail. Um, she obviously, she, she made another motion to, um, edit or change zero one five two zero one three from 20, um, from 2013 um and they they all the the several of the supervisors spoke highly of they mentioned the rubicon trail foundation many times as one of the groups to work with to understand this better um i have already had a meeting with george turnbow i have a meeting actually today at 12 o'clock with uh one of the other supervisors and i have another one uh scheduled for the week of the 23rd so uh we we are getting in front of them I, I, we, we definitely want to make, um, uh, if safety is going to be one of the things that they're going to look at in the future, there have to be criteria and we want to make sure that that does exist. That was your question. What's the criteria answer? There is none. And if that's going to be something that we need to, you know, give and take a little bit on, I want to make sure that it's, we all agree that it's something that we all could live with. And I think, a reasonable person, and I'm not saying that the conditions were extreme, especially a few days ago, and maybe during all that snowstorm where the county had a state of emergency, that that wasn't a good time that we should just stay away for a few days. But the way it's written right now, it's kind of open-ended. It has no, it has no real end. It says um, 60 days or until the conditions change and repairs have been made on the trail. Well, that could be June. I'm not saying that that's what they want to do. I'm saying that's what it says, and and I always say words matter. Words right. matter. That's that's what I was concerned about walking out of there because they said, okay, DOT needs to be back here with a new county resolution over the that zero one five dash two zero one three that work with the user groups um, and then come up with you know with the with new wordage you know new verbiage in it, and I. It said it needed to be done by May 30th. And right away, I'm like, well, great. DOT's just going to sit on it and say, guess what, guys? You're not using the trail until then. Mm, until that agreement's, at least until that agreement is read by Board of Supervisors. It, 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 it's, it's very it's possible. Not, it, it's very possible. It's, is it likely that that's what they want to do or, or, or plan on doing? We don't know. But that's what it says in the words. And that's the part that concerns the Rubicon Trail Foundation. And that's why we've been raising money all this time, so that we have the ability to go uh, to do whatever we need to do. And we're going to 100% be nice, work with them, be collaborative, come up with something in writing that everybody can live with, that makes sense, and it has actual criteria. We're going to do that. If they don't, or if they pass something that actually tries to close the Rubicon Trail uh, legally and usurping their RS two four seven seven rights that they're the current resolution is against the law. The county's not legally allowed to close the actual physical trail. They're not allowed to, but the resolution they passed and 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 that's a problem 
<laughs> it's a problem. You're not allowed to break the law, pass a law. And they did that, and they don't even know that they did. Well, one did. One supervisor, George, he, he understood that. But the others, they just didn't know, and they didn't get the good answers from their staff, which is unfortunate. And we didn't get a chance, like you said, in the process to help them with that. But we're going to do that on a one-on-one -on -one basis with each uh, supervisor to, to, to make that happen and make them understand why things were done the way they were 10 years ago. And they weren't there, which is fair. I, I get it. Um, right. So we're, so we're going we're gonna to try to make that, make that happen and uh, come up with something that we can live with. Well, and, and as a non-member, the Rubicon Trail Foundation or Friends mm -hmm. of the Rubicon or any other um, organization that will that, be involved in this, I can tell you that if they, if they come back and, and it's closed, I am going to be, make sure that somehow I get uh, the legal term is injured, but not physically injured. It's I more, know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I will go up there and sit until somebody gives me a ticket. Yeah. You know, I, I've positioned myself where I can do that now. If Shelly will let me out of the house long enough, I'll go up there. <laughs> I'll go up there and I'll wait for the sheriffs to write me a ticket or Forest Service or whoever, you know, I'm going to sit on the other side of that closure yeah. and wait until they, they I'm going to force their hand. So, so, so for the legal eagles that are out there listening and, and want to know exactly kind of like what we're really talking about here. Um, when, when something happens like the trail being closed it, uh, illegally, uh, we are, we, the community is injured. Uh, and if we were to file a lawsuit stating that we were injured the next day, if they lifted that closure, we would no longer be injured and that lawsuit would not be able to continue. However, if Shelly let Rich out of the house and he went up there and got a ticket for it, he would be injured whether the trail was open or not and would be able to uh, take legal action because he was in a continual injured state. So just how right. I've learned all this stuff is really a head scratcher because I was not interested in law at all when I was in uh, in college. Right. So, and and one of the things that I tried to put, put across is that, you know, I think as society in general, we have too many warning labels. Yeah. You know, there are Bubble signs, wrap. there are signs up there that say that, you know, these roads are not maintained that they're, you know, you travel at your own risk. Um, so there's already warning labels in that area. Yeah. And so a, a, as you um, may or may not know, so uh, Rubicon Trail Foundation is actually a 501c3 educational nonprofit. That likes, that's like our true um, tax-exempt status designation. And, and we have a lot of information about winter wheeling on the thing and on, the, on our website. But what we've came out about it, we, we're getting more into video. One of our directors, uh, John Larson, He's uh, he's got a project working on little small like video educational vignettes like uh, lockers and just things that you know because there's a lot of people that visit the Rubicon Trail from all over the United States and the world that aren't as uh, don't have the wheeling acuum that that we do and they don't know you know we get those questions all the time can my rig on 33s with blah 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 make it through the Rubicon um, I would say anything can make it through the Rubicon if you know how to drive right. but I know what they're asking. And so we're going to be doing a lot of that, but we, we've actually, uh, so recently, um, I, I, I believe he's a member. I'm not going to call out his name. I'll wait until the video comes out, but people around here know who he is. He is a wheeler. He's racing in King of the Hammers, by the way. He's racing in TV class because um, I've talked to him. 
And he was recently in a literal life and death situation, snow wheeling. And he posted that he made so many mistakes. And we're um, going to come out with a seven-part educational series on equipment and things you can do, communication. And uh, we're going to interview this person. And um, we'll learn his name then. Uh, I, I just want to be respectful to him until it actually happens. That right. you know, I'm not, I'm not calling him out by any anybody can make mistakes and he admits his mistakes, which is, you know, half the battle. Um, but he is not a, a snowflake tourist that went wheeling and nearly died. He is a wheeler. He's one of us. And he made some mistakes and nearly died. If it wasn't for his uh, three dogs, um, he would have died of hypothermia. Um, and so we want to tell his story. Uh, along with this educational series um, to to get the word out there. You know, I, I've been a winter wheeler on the Rubicon for a long time, years. Uh, Scott Johnson is one of the famous ones. Tim Green, a famous one. Um, these are all wheelers. I mean, to the point that when we're out there, we can see tire tracks and pretty much know who it is that's out there. But with the capabilities of rigs and tire dimensions growing and, and, and rig capabilities getting greater, more and more people have access to it. And they need that education on, on how and how they can get in trouble and how it can turn into a life that threat, nice threatening situation and how they can avoid it. So I agree. Uh, so that's going to be an important component of this whole thing is, is getting more education out there um, for that. Good. Um, yeah, cause I, you know, there's a couple of us, um, a couple of my friends and I that, you know, back in those early two thousands, you know, I mean, as soon as the blizzards would come in, we would head up into, we'd head up as far as we could. Yeah. And, you know, to discourage people, you know, snow camping's terrible. It's awful. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm being but you have, But you have to be, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you have to be prepared. You know, were we, uh, prepared, were we prepared to go overnight well, yeah, we had we had um, antifreeze with us. Um, yep. You know, we had uh, extra clothing. There was three of mm -hmm. us. We all had vehicles with winches. Um, yeah, we all we all knew the dangers of of snow wheeling in blizzards. And you know, we don't want to go up there when the sun is shining. It was more fun so, going up there when it was blizzards and there was nobody else around. Yeah. No, nobody else, and no bugs, no mosquitoes, no meat bees, none of that stuff. Right. It's a, it's, uh, it's quite different. Uh, so I was actually on the trail in March of 2012 when the little sloop tree fell. It was a huge blizzard situation. I have a photo of me on top of the dam, like leaning at a <laughs> nearly 45 degree angle because the wind was blowing 75 miles an hour, full blast. It was Scott Johnson, Desmond, and myself. And that's another thing. When you go snow wheeling, you, you can have a plan, but you better be prepared to throw your plan out the window. And we went there completely prepared. And, and people always ask, like, aren't you cold when you go snow wheeling? And, I, and I, my answer is if you throw enough money at it with your $400 pants and your $1,000 sleeping bag and your $800 tent, no, you're fine. But um we were there and and we immediately threw our plan out the window and in order for us not to you know have any issues we slept that night in the kiosk for safety and and we let we wheeled a little bit the next morning but there were six feet of snow that came down that night my i had an atv at the time on snow tracks and it was gone i knew where i parked it 
but it didn't exist. It was a couple little lumps in the snow where the handlebars were, and that was that. Um, it was it was insane. But uh, we 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 ended up throwing our plane out the win- window, and for personal safety, we uh, went in the in the kiosk that night. And I know it's not a place people are supposed to stay, but it was a situation where you know we we could have survived. But let's do the smart thing, and that's what right. we did. But people have to be prepared to change their plans when that stuff happens. Uh, so agreed. Don't lose a whole other animal. Agreed, one hundred percent. So anybody listening to this. I am going to um, make a statement right here, right now. There's a lot of organizations that I that I talk about that I am not a member of, and I'm going to become a member of those organizations. Whether I believe 100% in their... I almost always believe in the message. It may be the methodology of getting the message out there or how things are done that I don't agree with. But like you said, you know, you can either go, you know, what the fuck just happened? Um, or you can say, you know, you're going to be there, you know, trying to make, make change, stuff happen. make stuff happen. And so I'm going to get reinvolved with, with everything out there around the, the United States. You know, I'm a member of the off, off-road motorsports hall of fame, but you know, there's other organizations like um, Blue Ribbon and Tread Lightly and um, you Tread Lightly, Corva, Cal Four. If you're in California, they, right. they exist. I'm uh, all of those organizations, the Alphabet, yeah. um, including yeah. um, you know RTF. I'm I'm going to become a member. You know, I, I don't don't ask me to be on the board. Um, I won't. But I <laughs> <laughs> I love you, buddy, but I won't because <laughs> uh, I'm not the guy that's going to be politically correct um yeah you know i've had um, so, to the last 20 years because i was an event promoter well you know i'm 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 stepping away from that mold a bit um yeah and so uh i can go back to being a little more a little more um politically incorrect you know carry the two by four that kind of thing um but we're uh you know anybody else out there you know if you if you don't like what's happening you got to get involved. You, you got to get involved. And here's my advice, Rich, and this is for your listeners that are listening out there, and I know they're all over. Look at their mission statement. So the Rubicon Trail Foundation, I'm going to read you our mission statement. Okay. That Every nonprofit has to have a mission statement, and that's your guiding principle of what you spend your money on. And that mission, our mission statement says to enhance the future health and use of the Rubicon Trail while ensuring responsible, motorized, year-round trail access. That's our mission statement. So if anybody wants to, you know, thinking like, why are they trying so hard to care about winter wheeling or whatever, and the log, you know, splitting hairs, all that stuff, that's our mission statement. <laughs> that's what we're respond. That's what we have to do as part of our mission statement. So if we were going to abandon that, we would have to change our mission statement in order to do that. So, right, and, and I agree with that mission statement. What I don't agree with is the wait and see attitude. Um, you know, I, I think that that's that's you know playing the political game. And what I've noticed over the years is if you wait and see what happens or negotiate too easily, you lose. Yeah, uh, exactly. And and I said it earlier in the call: the magic wand closure or whatever it is. No. <laughs> we 
we have uh, protocols in place. And if you want something different, you got to come and work with the users to lay out what, what it is you'd like. And we'll come up with something that we both can, can live with. But it's, it's definitely going to have criteria and not a magic wand. Right. Well, Ken, I want to say thank you very much for coming on board and talking about your life and the Rubicon Trail Foundation and, and everything that's involved, especially going on right now with this uh, yeah. county resolution and the closure, this closure, illegal closure of the Rubicon at this po- particular moment. Yeah, th- thanks. For, thanks a ton for having. I obviously didn't. Ex- I got a text out of the blue. Hey, Ken, you want to be on my podcast <laughs> tomorrow? <laughs> um, yep. And so uh, I, I made it happen. But I, I just wanted to tell you, you know, you you uh, you, you told me about four low, and I'm giving you a little um, um, a little uh, feet um, pimping you out there. Uh, you, you told me about four low magazine. We were at WFO together, Trevor Huskins. Uh, a shop here in uh, Auburn, uh, WFO Concepts. We we met there, me, you, and Shelly, and you said, hey, I'm doing this magazine, and it's going to have really good paper and really good pictures and all that stuff, and it's the kind of magazine that we really want. And why I didn't subscribe, I have no idea, but I want to personally apologize that I didn't subscribe to you right off the bat because I got my first issue in December, and it was everything that you said it was a year or two years earlier so I'm sorry. And if you're a Wheeler, Forlow Magazine is a great publication. Really, really, really nice. Uh, the kind of magazine that we like to read, not well, not junk. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah. It is a labor of love. Um, Shelly's working on it right at the moment. And because uh, it's that time of the month with, that we have, uh, you know, we have to get all the articles put together and get the, the magazine ready. But, um, you know, I... I really appreciate you coming on board and yeah. and helping me understand a little bit better and hopefully everybody else that um, cares about places like the Rubicon. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of trail systems out there that are, that are unprotected. You might have yeah. clubs that are um, caretakers, you know, they've, they've got to deal with the forest service or BLM or whatever to be, you know, to maintain the trail and, um, you know, do cleanups and stuff like that, adopt a trail type programs. Yeah. But if the trail isn't protected properly, like what the, what the Rubicon is, you know, there, there, you really don't have the rights. And right now we're, we're trying to save our rights up there because it is protected under, you know, uh, under the law. So we need to, uh, yes. we need to, to keep working on that. So thank you. Words matter. Words matter, Rich. Yes. And with that, thank you so much. Thanks, Rich. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, And let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.